0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Happy Polar Week from all of us at Polar Times. For those of you who don't know, Polar Week is where the polar community simply celebrates all the science and culture and enjoyment of Working and living at the Poles, essentially, there's been lots of great events going on around the world celebrated by the Polar community. There have been uh, webinars, there have been Twitter contests, there have been uh, exhibitions of Indigenous... Art and things like that. Apex have hosted a photograph competition and also a poetry competition, which um, the works should be available to check out on their website. So that's APECS, Apex, uh, Association of Polar Early Career Scientists. And here at Polar Times, we're also celebrating Polar Week. We are bringing you a very special episode. We have done away with our regular format, which is, as you know, it's just having one guest. And we've put together a panel of people, all from different backgrounds with different expertise. And the theme of the discussion today is simply change. I won't talk about it too much because we definitely get into it in the episode. So uh, hopefully you enjoy We also have a new feature called Questions from the Public, which is where we answer some of the questions that you lovely people have sent into us, things that you would like polar people to answer. After the recording, the episode ended up being quite long, I won't admit, and it was so good that we didn't want to edit lots of stuff out. So what we've done is we've ended up splitting the episode in two, so there will be two special episodes. So this is the first of those two special episodes and it's just the debate on change in polar life. And then the second one will also be coming out today and that will be questions from the public. So yeah, stay tuned and hopefully your questions will be answered and hopefully you'll enjoy the debate. And thanks again for coming back to Polar Times. Okay, please welcome to the stage our guests for today. We have a lovely panel of guests for you today, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves, tell you who they are and a little bit about themselves and also what their favorite thing about being a polar person is. Okay, so let's start with Ingrid. Thanks
1: Jack, so my name is uh, Ingrid Medby. I'm a political geographer, I work at Oxford Brookes University and my work is, it centers on ideas of of identity in Arctic geopolitics, so I've been really interested in how we relate to the Arctic region and specifically how decision makers relate to the region and how that then perhaps influences their political practices, what they do, what decisions they make, um, how negotiations take place and so on. So that's been been my broad focus. And then I've focused a little bit more recently on the Norwegian Russian border region. So the Bardens region, again, looking at decision making, political participation and, and questions of whose voices are heard in, in Arctic politics.
0: What is your favourite thing about being a polar researcher?
1: So my favorite thing, um, it's its difficult to say, and maybe this sounds a little bit cheesy, but I actually think it's the community of, of polar researchers. It's such an interdisciplinary sort of field to be in, and I feel very fortunate to be you know, a social scientist, to get to engage with also natural scientists really frequently. And uh, I get to learn so much every single conference I go to, field trips I go on. I always learn from from colleagues who do really different research than me but in the same region and i think you know when we talk about the polar regions it is perhaps obvious that you know you can't talk about arctic or or antarctic politics without having an appreciation of some of the science as well in particular climate how that how that is a, a big factor in anything you know even if you're talking about high level state diplomacy you have to have an appreciation of some of those those physical dynamics of the region as well so yeah the very friendly very open interdisciplinary community of, of other researchers i would say is my favorite part
0: ah, we'd love to hear that and especially coming from apex which is uh you know networking for early careers so yeah okay let's move down the panel to uh steve let's have you next
2: hi there um, i'm steve robert i'm a quaternary geologist at the british antarctic survey um i've been working there for like about the last 17 years, so, so quite a while now. And um, really, my research focuses on reconstructing past environmental change and using mainly terrestrial records uh, such as lake sediment records and pe- peat records at the moment in particular. Um, I actually started working in this field when I was, I was doing my PhD in Edinburgh, and that was sort of focused with a lot of field work in Iceland, uh, looking at volcanic ash deposits as chronological markers. So I'm very interested in chronology, sedimentology, geochemistry. Geochem- and one of the things we've been doing recently is developing a, a series of biogeochemical proxies that help us help us reconstruct past changes in temperature uh, from the sediments. And we're also looking at what are known as wind proxy from the geochemistry and from the microorganisms that live in the lakes and get preserved in the lake sediment. Um, in the past, we've looked at a variety of different projects where we've looked at climate change, sea level change. Um, we're also working on a few pollution projects at the moment so for example we've been working with some collaborators in australia investigating just, this is a current project we're looking at uh, plutonium fallout from nuclear weapons and looking at a different isotope of, that we can find within the lake sediments and the peak records as well so um yeah over the years i've participated in quite a number of field campaigns to to antarctica sub-antarctic chile and and iceland uh, as well And I guess, what's my favorite thing? Apart from all the things that Ingrid said, which which are all true (laughs) for me as well. Um, So I won't repeat those, I'll come up with a different one. Uh, I think probably my favorite thing about polar life um, is getting to visit lots of very uh, spectacular places with spectacular scenery. Um, I've always loved being out in the mountains and always interested in photography. So on top of the science that we do, which is really interesting, Obviously, all, there's a there's another element for me, which is that, which, which is getting to visit these places and staying in the environment. Yeah, I think that's my favourite thing.
0: Yeah, I think that's a draw for a lot of people. A lot of polar scientists will empathise with that. You know, we're very lucky. And it's cool that you have experience from both Arctic and Antarctic in the field as well. That must be... Uh, particularly special. Okay, let's move on to Matteo.
3: So yeah, hi, I'm Mathieu Casado. I'm also a paleoclimatologist. Uh, presently, I'm working at the Alfred Wegener Institute and at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And my, my specialty is uh, ice core records from uh, both the Arctic, Antarctica, and also from uh, the Himalayas. And uh, it was very nice to listen again to the the podcast with Isabel yesterday, because she introduced a lot of the things that I do. So it's like I would say that your listener can listen to what she says very clearly and very well to know a little bit more of what I do. But in a few words, my, my main work is to try to see if uh, combining the the very large number of records that we have in both the Arctic, the Antarctic and in also the Alpine cryosphere, we can be able to reconstruct more precisely the climate of the past and in particular at high resolution. And yeah, for my favorite thing in, for the region, It's a little bit difficult to come after those two responses that were great. Um, But I would say that maybe polar regions are always like kind of so far and so foreign for everyone. And everyone is always very impressed when you say that you've been there and like how different it was and when you tell the story. But I also feel like they're so important for the global climate and for the global environment. And one of the things that really fills me with joy is how people see how important they are because, I mean, maybe for wrong reason, but because of the cute animals and because of the nice pictures. But then like, it's still something that people take seriously. And I don't know, I'm kind of optimistic, like, for example, that Antarctica remains a land of science and is not claimed yet by countries. This kind of fills me with hope for, for the future.
0: Okay, fabulous. And that is our panel. Okay, so for the main body of today's episode, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm sort of, instead of just having one guest, obviously we have three, So we've got the kind of theme of today's episode is change. So, you know, it's been a kind of weird year where a lot of things have changed for pretty much everyone, not least in polar science and for polar people. But then, you know, there's much more, that's a much broader topic. It doesn't have to be recent change. It could be change over millennia and it not just physical changes, but changes in attitude or all kinds of things. So, so when I say the word change, what springs to mind for you for regarding polar places? For me, it's kind of, you know, things that probably is the same for a lot of the general public, like, you know, climate change and uh, habitat change and maybe, you know, globalization and stuff like that but um yeah so what's what springs to mind for you
1: so i i agree with you i think probably climate change is the one that definitely comes up first but thinking about it i actually think for me the most one of the really interesting changes is also the the change in interest and awareness in the polar regions. Um, so as I said before, um, in my research, I focus on the Arctic region, and I think the interest in the Arctic has grown exponentially in the last perhaps 15 or so years. So I uh, I grew up in Northern Norway, and I grew up not hearing the term Arctic really. I've probably heard it, but it wasn't something that was applied to, to Northern Scandinavia at that time. But that's really changed now. And now we, of course, Um, hear much more discussion about the arctic council and and the various developments that take place and the geopolitics of the region there's a lot of interest in you know what's uh, what's china's interest how are they gonna perhaps get involved uh, and so on and and you know now you have the big uh, publishers like national geographic had a big feature on the arctic recently recently and that's just one example we see a lot of tv programs as well uh, focusing on it and i think the kind of general awareness globally has has really grown and, and you can see that also in terms of the observers to the arctic council i think you know the most recent um countries that have expressed an interest to become observers includes ireland um, the czech republic um, of course China joined before korea japan you know it's it's uh, these are regions that the world is, is looking to because of climate change, um, but it's really changing, I think, societal relations far beyond the, the specific latitudes of, of the polar regions.
2: I think for me, really, you know, as a, someone who looks at the past and the past record, the, the relationship between what's going on now and how things have changed in the past and how big these changes are in relation to those changes is quite an interest. It's, it's one area that always springs to mind whenever I think of change, um, and particularly in the polar regions where some of the changes are quite fast and have been quite dramatic over the last few decades. So I think that's, that's always my first kind of thought when I think about change. So it's, it's mostly work-related, but I thought about it a bit more, and I thought there are probably a couple of other areas of when someone says change to me, I always I, I probably think about the changes within the organisations that I work for and the institutions that we work with and things like that. And also changes in your personal life and your own circumstances, which can lead you in different directions throughout your career and how that interacts with the, the kind of science that you do and how it progresses through time. So there's there's always, you know, there's always change in all those three areas. And, and really you have, you don't necessarily have complete control over all those changes either. So it's kind of an interesting um question if you like because it can cover so many different so many different things and can mean so many different things so i actually found it quite a difficult one But i at first i was like oh yeah it's just alien environmental change that's what we do then i started to think about it a bit more and actually you know there's been a lot of big changes um within the organization that i work for over the last sort of 15 years 15 20 years and some of those have been quite significant
3: yeah I mean I guess for me like being a, an early career researcher still uh, change is also like every time I get involved in a new project or in a new field work everything is very new and it's like a radical change at least in my point of view on all those topics and how I kind of see the, the world and and of course like being also a paleoclimate person I'm also a lot facing like what is change in a kind of more of a nerdy way like the difference between weather and climate and how a short-scale event can be reversible but then like what's really changed and so like maybe for me like um it would be more like the question of how do you actually define change and like at the sense of how and when can you say that you detect a change of trend and you detect the impact of climate change, which is something that has been long debated for Antarctica and used by climate skeptics as kind of our look in those areas of Antarctica, we don't see any imprint of climate change because it doesn't exist. And this is kind of a a big question of what is change? How do you detect change? And how do you prove when you have a lot of also other external viability that there is a change of behavior?
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like it's a it's a very broad topic, and we picked that deliberately so that hopefully there would be <laughs> a lot to talk about. And obviously, people are aware that the polls are changing now, and especially within our lifetimes, just for human issues contributing to climate change, etc. And I think there's kind of a preconception that before that, before recent times. The poles were a kind of static place, you know. They were this pristine, untouched wilderness, and then they've been kind of changed a lot by us, by our policies and our actual physical impacts and stuff like that. So, aside from you know um, recent changes, I suppose, what would you say are the most influential changes that have ever occurred to the poles? Is that that's a difficult question.
1: I I think perhaps uh, my other panelists will be uh, better able to answer this uh, than me. But I was thinking a little bit about migration and settlement and how changing climatic conditions have allowed people to to move north um, and of course also move east and west and, and changing patterns of habitation. And we tend to take that for granted. We we sort of, as as you said, we think of not just the poles, but we often think of of geography as more or less static we we know that there's some movement but you know we think of the world map and that it's kind of always looked like that and of course it hasn't um that's one of the one of the things we we teach in first year human geography is that there is no such thing as a static geography everything is always moving and, and changing in some way but it's just the question is what scale are we talking about um both in terms of geography but also of course time scales and i think in, in the Northern region. Um, certainly that's been one of the big changes is that people have been been able to move further north and in, in the European Arctic, the, the impacts of the Gulf Stream that has uh, created very different living conditions than we would have had if it wasn't for those climatic changes and uh, influences.
0: Yeah, it must've been quite a, well, like I said, like a big change when, you know, humans first migrated into like the far north and started, you know, living that really <laughs> would have changed the environment and changed everything yeah
1: yeah of course and and the impact of the the people in the inn as well so they you know people move because of changing climates but then also as soon as they do they they make changes themselves so those are big big topics and uh, again really you know we can think of it at really different timescales because of course we often hear the stories of, of um Viking settlement in, in Greenland that was unsuccessful and they only really stayed a few years but that was also due to temporarily um, warming weather really um, before moving on.
0: Yeah and, um, that, and, and Antarctic has also had some massive changes and um, I'm sure Steve might uh, be familiar with this or roll his eyes but you know whenever I go to bass and hear uh, the director Jane Francis talk about her research she talks about you know how Antarctica used to be covered in you know dense jungle and foliage and stuff like that and obviously that's not the case anymore so (laughs) that was a big change at some point in the polar uh spectrum
2: yeah i was i I was going to um kind of start by going all the way back to that actually because it's a really good point i mean uh for for antarctic research um the formation of the change from that big shift from where antarctica was was um sort of semi-tropical semi-tropical sub-tropical foliage um and to Glaciation, which occurred, you know, sort of 33 million years ago. And that's a, the big, the changes then were, were slow, but over the time scale of geology, you know, huge. But very often the key, key factor is obviously the rate of change and that rate of change because of the open of the Drake passage and everything else that goes with that. And the isolation of Antarctica in terms of millions of years is quite slow. But when we look at it now, um, and say you looked at a graph of it, a, a plot of the, the changes through time, uh, that have occurred with ice volumes, for example, that that changes is, is, is very significant, but obviously occurred over a very long period of time. And the changes that we're seeing today occur much, uh, some of those can be much more rapid uh, and of different orders of magnitude. And I think that's the key point as well about change: is not just that things are changing, but the rates that they change at as well. Um, and so. A lot of the records that we look at are mostly from the Holocene, and so we don't see some of these really big changes that perhaps Matthew sees in the interglacial glacial cycles. Um, But for us, those are big changes, and those are significant changes. And as Ingrid said, some of those can cause really big societal changes as well. So things like the medieval warm period were quite significant for human um, evolution, well not evolution, but human habitation, and they caused really big shifts. Um, But if you look at them on the the longer term scale of interglacial glacial changes, they're relatively small. But in terms of impact on humans, they can be quite big. And I think what we're doing now, because the rate of change and the scale of it, uh, of the warming is uh, is much bigger and faster, the impact is potentially bigger. So yeah, those things are all combined into a broad geological history all the way through to the present day. Um, I think the changes and the scales are always important
3: yeah, I guess in in the same direction I think like this this kind of very complicated concept in uh, uh, developed in my lab and I will try to make it very simple which is kind of this uh, degrees of freedom and the idea is that if you have um, um, a change on a very short time scale you it's likely to also be kind of a local change but then when you have Uh, change at very long timescales like for example glacial interglacial timescales usually those were kind of global and then you only have one degree of freedom in the sense that everything uh, changes or pulses together and so then I feel like this timescale is critically important when you're trying to think of what is the biggest change that happened in a region or for polar region or for the world in the sense that if you look at the scale of the Holocene as Stephen said like you will have those changes that would be major but then as soon as you dezoom zoom a little bit and see the last glaciation, like the Holocene looks critically flat and then if you go even further where you have those difference with a uh, glacial interglacial cycle that instead of being a hundred thousand years uh, period will have a period of 40,000 years and this is not necessarily a change of temperature but uh, a very important change of behavior and how is, um, how is the world in a 40,000 year glacial interglacial cycle compared to a 100,000 year glacial interglacial cycle. Uh, I feel like this is also kind of a, uh, an important change. And in this regard, like what's kind of um, very interesting in a, in a sad way uh, with the recent climate change is that it's a rapid change, but it's also a global change. So it's in this regard, a little bit unusual in the sense that normally something that has such a short time scale would be rather local.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And that's, of course, one reason why the climate change thing is so bad, as I'm sure most people know. But then I remember originally it was like people used to say, oh, well, you know, it's all part of the geological cycle of carbon changing and stuff like that. But yeah, it's the rate of change, like you say, and also the time period. So why don't we pick a more specific time period with my next question? Um what would you say is the biggest change that you have observed in your career like since you started being a polar person
1: I think it comes back to the the level of interest actually um the just the growth in people caring about the poles um I think you know during the cold war the the arctic region was strategically important but I don't think it's something that the public was as interested in whereas now there's almost Every day, there's something available on on TV with uh, with some sort of Arctic or Antarctic theme. Um, I think there's a lot of. Interest in traveling there as well, of course, with growing awareness of climate change, you have this this tourism that where people are drawn to experience the poles, and uh, of course, all of that then drives further change. So that's the the paradox of all of this. But I do think overall that increasing awareness and interest is a is a positive thing, and and certainly that's something that I've I've observed even in I mean I'm an early career researcher as well, but even in my short career that I've seen that that interest has has grown although in some ways i mean it i guess it it goes up and down a bit and um also in times of other you know other big events globally um the polar regions perhaps then have have less interest than you know around 2007 so that was before i entered academia but in 2007 when the the russian flag was planted on the on the north pole floor that's something that's still brought up all the time and that really generated a lot of interest and uh, we haven't perhaps had those really spectacular sensationalist events uh
0: since so do you find a lot of you run into a lot of just interest from members of the public or like people who aren't connected to polar fields and academia i mean the only reason i ask is just i in my own experience i sometimes get the feeling that polar places are a little bit kind of out of sight out of mind and if you bring it up people are like oh great penguins uh icebergs but then beyond that there's not much uh you know real real interest i suppose and that's you know partly what we're trying to solve with this podcast to bring polar issues more into you know into the forefront of people's minds so i was just wondering if that's uh you know if you would agree with that
1: yeah i i do because i'm based in the uk now i think it is different in in norway um where i'm originally from i think people there have a slightly different relationship to it where there the main change is that people have become much more aware of this this arctic geographical position whereas before you know you you would really um focus on perhaps your geographical position in europe or in you know northern europe or yeah, as a nato state in norway's case whereas Increasingly, I think that, that Arctic marker has become something that people are aware of, at least. I, I wouldn't say that there is a kind of a widespread Arctic identity where I'm from, um, even though that's what some of my research has been on, is kind of how do people relate to this marker. Um, but I, I think people are definitely more aware of being labelled in the quote-unquote Arctic region because of the Arctic Circle, even though, of course, the climatic conditions there are, are not what we would call necessarily cl- um arctic but but to come back to your question i don't think people in their every day neither here in the uk or many other places perhaps go around and, and really worry about what happens in the arctic but i think it is something that people have a little bit more knowledge about now because it is tied to these wider discussions of climate change and i think that is something that is at the forefront of people's minds and then in some ways the the well, both of the polar regions actually i think have become a sort of image of that or um the the sort of poster child polar bear on an ice flow has become very famous and i think that is something that people are um aware of and, and as i said with popular culture as well i i couldn't say whether there has been an increase in it, but I certainly have um, thought about, because it's something that I'm interested in, but I have thought about the, just the amount of TV programs, radio programs, podcasts that aren't about, not like this, about Arctic research or, or polar research, but actually you know traveling there, for example. So I'm thinking of, for example, Joanna Lemley's Chasing the Northern Lights and the increase in, in cruise tourism whenever, or so often when I tell people here in the UK who are, are not in academia about my, my research, they'll have some sort of association to the Arctic regions perhaps that they really want to travel there. Maybe they've been to Lapland, they've been to Santa Village, or they have some kind of, of um, relationship to the region, I think. So picking up
2: on something Ingrid said there, actually, it's quite it's quite interesting. So each year for the last 10 years, we've been going to the uh, Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, and this involves lots of members of the public coming up and talking to us uh, about Antarctica mainly because we have a big tent up there. And over the last 10 years or so, I've noticed quite a shift in people's, the the types of questions that people ask have changed and the way that they ask them. And there's been a real shift from kind of almost disbelieving you about climate change and global warming. And in the last couple of years, people have been a lot more kind of, oh yeah, this is is probably happening now. And And so I think, I think Ingrid is right. There has been a shift in people's attitudes, very much, uh, and you, you kind of, you know, it's only anecdotal, but I've noticed it a lot. And it's much easier for me, standing as a scientist in the street next to a tent, explaining, um, explaining things now, than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago, when the, some of the changes were only really just being noticed or reported in the news uh, in a really big way. So I think there has been a shift in attitudes, and you do see it in in um in in when you talk to the public in general like that on a on a kind of larger scale and, and face-to-face as well so i think that's interesting um another thing that i find we we always get asked at those fossil festivals is um do you have you personally seen these changes happening and 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 my answer is always no well actually not for myself because we don't ever go back to the same place uh, the kind of projects we work on take us to different places all the time. So we don't get to go back and, and see those actual changes happening over the last 10 or 15 years in the same way that somebody who would go back and monitor uh, glacier change in, in, say, the Antarctic Peninsula with ablation stakes or other satellite imagery and things like that. We don't get to see those kind of big changes in the field that they're talking about because everything we do is, is, is uh, moving around to different places. But but yeah, so our colleagues definitely have seen uh, those big changes, and colleagues that we work with for sure. But but personally, no, I haven't. We haven't been to one place so many times that we've seen things change that dramatically. So each time we go to a new place, new, so it hasn't obviously changed because we've not been there before
0: yeah we're hoping to have some kind of uh you know polar guides who work in tourism come on and who will go to the same places every year and i'm sure they'll be able to tell us about like they'll be able to say like oh the glacier was here and now it's here that kind of thing so so yeah yeah I think I mean, that say,
2: happens a lot i mean most a lot of people that we work with uh, and and they work on you know one particular glacier or they've worked on a lot of satellite imagery for example over the years so yeah they definitely would would notice that change that you're talking about
0: yeah i feel a little bit sorry for those uh, glaciologists who you know a whole product is on one glacier and they're just watching it shrink essentially it must be a little bit heartbreaking yeah <laughs> okay how about you how what's the biggest change that you've noticed in recent years
3: yes it's perfect introduction because i feel like for me the biggest change i've noticed was um since i wasn't here for a long time was this uh, calving of the larsen sea ice cores in 2017 when like there was this huge chunk of uh, Antarctica shelf uh, floating away from Antarctica and yeah for for me this was um, a very interesting event and what kind of really struck me is this is um, one of the first time we were able to observe something that big drifting away from Antarctica using the fact that now we have satellite images very regularly that enabled Uh, glaciologists to really spot like the cracks and when the and followed even like the huge iceberg drifting away uh, for the last three years which was uh, like absolutely like stunning to see like following the the Antarctic current and one big question that um, I I was asked actually quite a few times at this point is um, is this something like really really new or is this something that happened a lot in the past and it's something that we're not really able to say because we only had satellite data for the last 50 years and so who is to say how many um ice shelf like last and see broke off antarctica during the holocene for instance and this was a, a funny thing again like being a, an early career scientist because i feel like to some aspect glaciology is also an early career science in the sense that it's uh we've been to antarctica mainly for the last 70 years Before that, there were like before the the polar year of nineteen fifty-five, if I'm not mistaken, there were basically almost no one in Antarctica. What we have as information from Antarctica, and it's also true for some very high elevation places and from some places in the Arctic, I'm sure, really is very short span of data, which also makes it very intriguing and interesting. There is still a lot of mysteries there.
0: Yeah, that's good news for us polar researchers too. <laughs> There's lots still to find out. Yeah. Sure. Let
1: me think of another change as well. That I, And this is one of the ways in which the Arctic and the Antarctic are different, of course, but um, our, our availability, the availability of, of data. And uh, I think, you know, we are all early career researchers here, but... One of the most powerful experiences I have had is, is speaking to elders in the Arctic and specifically in the in Nunavut in the Canadian North who could talk about um, experiencing change themselves but also having these incredible oral histories where they could talk about what conditions had been like hundreds of years back and really have that kind of um, generational memory that we as, as scientists we we don't have the data but actually that does exist in different forms and I think when we're talking about change this is one of the really well positive changes that I've seen and also in recent years is that indigenous and traditional knowledge is being talked about a lot more so now if you are doing arctic research in, in areas that have been populated then then it's almost a necessity to include that you have to um take into account the people who live there and, and quite often that also means that there are areas in which that we as, as scientists uh, are not actually the experts at all and, and need to take a step back and, and listen to the people who who are from there and have those histories so that's a that's both a positive change in terms of uh academic practice but also i think a different ways of, of talking and thinking about how we can know and measure measure change even if we don't necessarily have have it measured out in ourselves
0: okay perfect it's like you read my mind because my next question was going to be are there any positive changes (laughs) that you've noticed (laughs) so same question to all of you
1: i think as as well as improving the ways in which we conduct science and, and knowledge production in the polar regions i also think just generally that the whole field in terms of decision making as well has has matured so the Arctic Council was initiated in the mid-90s but but really we have seen a tremendous change in terms of involvement I mentioned that a lot of other non-Arctic states are becoming observers and these things are really positive for for example creating um, agreements and best practices on on how to engage in the regions not just scientifically but also in terms of shipping regulations and tourism regulations all of those things that are needed i think actually the at least the arctic region has has proven a, a positive example for how states can work together when it is needed and when the the topic of collaboration is is quite clearly demarcated so really that's one of the things that the arctic council is so often praised for is that they are able to collaborate even when relations are difficult elsewhere and of course the governance structures around antarctica and the antarctica and the treaty is also unique and as you know as, as Mathieu was saying as well it is creates uh, it gives us some hope that countries can work together in, in kind of non-competitive ways and and I think all of those things are just—they have been developing—and I think the rest of the world is sometimes looking to to the polar regions as an as an example for how how um, states can collaborate.
4: In terms of positive change, uh, I think you know organizations uh, such as SCAR in the Antarctic Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research are very important because they um, bring different countries and different researchers interested in different fields together under different programs and certainly those programs have expanded over the last 20 years and there's a lot more cooperation uh, on across all different fields not just you know not just the fields that we work in so we've seen that and we see the impact of that within and how that feeds back into your own research and your own organization so that's all that's been definitely been a very positive change i think within the uk there's been a kind of opening up of antarctic research it was very much driven for example by bass british antarctic survey and and seen i think you know i think it would be fair to say maybe 20 25 years ago it might have been seen as a bit of a closed shop in a way that only people who work there would go down and do that research and there and in the early 2000s there was a big push to to increase the number of people within the universities uh, through different funding schemes through antarctic funding initiatives which got me into antarctic research when i was Working on Antarctic Funding initi- Initiative projects as a postdoc. And that's kind of expanded as well within the UK. And so now we have a lot more cooperation between the university sector and, and the research institute sectors within the UK. So I think, and, and uh, looking into polar research in particular. So yeah, that's definitely a positive thing. Uh, and within polar research as a whole, I think there's an increasing recognition of the value and of increasing diversity increasingly allowing people to be themselves at work and 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 then you know bringing the kind of true selves into the workplace and i think that's very important because it allows people to flourish and uh you know progress and we 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 all benefit from that and organizations bass has been involved in, in pushing that very recently so i think it's yeah that's a very positive thing
3: I think I'd, I'd go back to a little bit what uh, we discussed in previous questions. I think for me, what's, uh, a little bit what Stephen was saying is that the way people are seeing um, the climate crisis and in polar region in general, I think maybe one positive aspect is that uh, nowadays it's actually seen in a, in a more credible way by general audience and even politicians and I've been collaborating a lot uh, within APEX with the IPCC on like helping them reviewing the, the, the reports, which are like 20 years ago, like the IPCC reports were already predicting that the climate change was uh, created by men, activities and emission of greenhouse gases. And I feel like politicians were looking at them like they were just uh, crazy scientists talking about their niche knowledge that no one really cared about, which has clearly changed nowadays. And um, one big aspect was all those um, attacks that were made against the IPCC about the credibility of the review process, uh, which have been, like, very worked upon and, like, there were a lot of progress and this is how we we collaborated with the IPCC to help them review. And in this process, like, the the way an IPCC report works is that it's an almost open review process in the sense that anyone who has who wants to do the review can like apply. You don't need to be a a researcher or a scientist. If you think you have something important to say on the report, you can apply and be a reviewer. And in this framework, um, like we were a group of 75 early career scientists to try to do the review. And all the authors of the IPCC reports will actually work together and look at every single comment that's been made and provide an answer. And this was like a very, big increase in transparency, and I think it created a lot of uh, recognition that those reports were very valuable and actually uh, showing a a real scientific consensus, which is now like, I feel more accepted that those reports are very useful and uh, creating a, a lot of added value on this climate crisis.
0: So it's not all doom and gloom, which is good news for everyone listening. I just have one final question on the theme of change for all of you, and that is, what it's kind of a two pronged question, but let's try not to get too bogged down. Um, what changes would you expect to see in the future in polar life? And also, or like, which and which of those do you think are kind of essential that we still need to work harder to achieve on?
1: Broadly speaking, I think climate change will continue. We we know that, and that will have a range of secondary effects, both in terms of um, societal impacts as well as the more environmental and, and um, physical impacts that we can we can see and we can measure as well. So the effects of that will be very wide-ranging i think and it's it's hard to just pick one of them uh i unfortunately think that we have a lot of negative changes coming from secondary effects of, of climate change unfortunately um of course, we can hope that some of those positive changes we just talked about will also continue and and increase. So, increasing participation in in decision making, having voices heard, having participation in research and, and knowledge production, um, diversifying that, and 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 hearing the the influence of of early career researchers as well as as kind of a wider array than than those already um, having their voices heard in the international fora, but. But yeah, I'm not entirely optimistic. We we do know that climate change is happening faster in the polar regions than elsewhere. So unfortunately, that is... That is bound to continue, even if we do succeed with um, with the upcoming climate conferences and coming up with agreements and, and um, uh, stopping emissions. That is, of course, the hope. So um, we'll, we'll see. I, I have hopes that the upcoming comp- COP26 in Glasgow will lead to something positive and that we can start talking about positive changes as well. Um, but um, we'll see.
4: Um, I think in terms of the future, there's, I think what was probably see in antarctica is a kind of increase in research activity perhaps that goes along with uh, a recognition by governments that that it's an important it's an important region Um, and the investments that they've put into those areas not just in the uk but lots of different nationalities have really invested quite heavily in infrastructure recently and in and around the antarctic and that can help support science in the future obviously and i think We'll probably see that continuation of of increased research and probably numbers of researchers. And there's been quite a large increase, you know, over the last twenty years in terms of the numbers of researchers who are involved in polar research. And it's the, the number of people attending conferences has gone up significantly, and hopefully that will continue. So that would be my kind of wish, I guess, for the future.
3: When you asked this question, I was back in a very gloomy mode and like. <laughs> I just thought of this horrible story that happened um, um, the year after I went to the French station Dumont d'Urville, which is on the coast in Antarctica. It's a station that's very, it's on a small island just off the coast of Antarctica, and there are a lot, there is a, a hatchery for Adélie penguins on this island. And something crazy happened the year after I was there that basically actually rained. And the rain, got all the the penguin chicks wet and because their feathers are not waterproof yet when it froze again the next night they basically all died which is like a very sad story and the only one which survived were basically the one living under the buildings built by for the scientific research they're all like on those kind of big sticks i don't remember the name in english but they're, they're a little bit elevated and so there were like penguins living under there and there the chicks were protected from the rain, so they didn't die i feel like i'm a little bit afraid that we're gonna see like this type of large-scale uh catastrophic event that will just take a large toll every time on wildlife or even on societal activities uh on glacier like the calving of glaciers will probably happen like those kind of events that will not like be like a a Hollywood movie where everyone died because there was this one event. It just, It's just going to take one regional toll at a time and every time like those tiny crises will kind of go a little bit uh, noticed in the newspaper for a couple of weekends and we'll all forget about them. And I'm a, a little bit like trying to remain optimistic but this type of image is also often pop in mind when I'm thinking of those topics.
0: Mm, yes it's a, not a little bit of a grim story but you know that's the nature of what happens sometimes, and, you know, no one can be listening to this and be shocked. They're like, oh no, climate change is still happening at this stage, and it's going to be there are going to be bad things. So, you know, if, if if you are horrified by that story, hopefully you'll be spurred on to <laughs> to care a little bit more about climate change and uh, polar places. Alrighty, that brings us to the end of part one of this special episode. That was the debate. And coming up in part two, we have questions from the public. So it should have been released on the same day. So it should already be there, ready for your consumption and for your delight. So head over and listen to part two. If you don't have time right now, that's totally fine. Please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. Polar Times, you can contact us in all of the usual ways via our email. These are polartimes at gmail.com, or you can tweet apex at polar underscore research. We would love to hear from you. I know you can hear lots of people sent in great questions. So if you would also like to ask a polar person a question, you can contact us using those details. So from all of us at Polar Times, happy Polar Week, and thank you for listening.
2: Please note that whilst this is an Apex production views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.